Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about homeland security. With us in the studio is Eric Dietz, the executive director of the Indiana Department of Homeland Security. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Eric, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for being here with us today, Mary Catherine. Hi, Bob. Hi. Good to see you on Friday at noon, as always. Good to be here. All right. Well, this is a, a, a very topical, timely topic, I guess. The, the uh, issue of homeland security, we are uh, obviously entering this weekend when people are going to start thinking an awful lot about what happened five years ago. Um, September 11th will be Monday. It'll be the fifth anniversary of the attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and the crash in Pennsylvania. So, in case we were forgetting, al-Qaeda was kind enough to release some more tapes yeah, to, right. as a little yeah. salt in the wind. Yeah, yeah, right. So, you know, obviously the first – I'm going to ask you a great big broad question first and say are we, are we safer now than we were five years ago? I, I would say we certainly are. Mm-hmm. Uh, after 9-11, there, there was a number of public safety programs that were funded by the federal government. Indiana has benefited to the tune of about $150 million since 9-11. Uh, that has helped uh, local public safety agencies with everything from communications to protective mm-hmm. equipment and detectors. Uh, that have provided capabilities that we would have never dreamed of being able to afford before. And we've uh, been very fortunate to to get that help. And I think we've, uh, you know, in most cases, in almost all cases, well spent that money to improve our state's preparedness. Mm-hmm. Now, how was the Office of Homeland Security uh, developed? Was this a, a federal mandate that each state should have one? And did it grow out of an existing office? <clears throat> well, well, it did. Uh, in, in the case of Indiana, uh, in each state is a little different. Some states you have to fu- you have to have put three guys at the other end of the table to you know uh, talk to somebody who um, has the responsibilities I have in Indiana. Uh, what we have here is Governor Daniels, when he came to office, brought his experience from the White House after 9-11. And he saw the need in the White House, uh, you know, uh, with President Bush to uh, consolidate Homeland Security uh, into one office and one function. And uh, when he looked at state government, he felt the same was needed here. Uh, there was a, a, a law passed that created the Homeland Security Office uh, April 15th of uh, uh, two years ago. Uh, the office was created out of the state emergency management. Uh, it also combined the building commissioner's office, the fire marshal's office, a training institute, as well as a counterterrorism uh, center that the state had. So those five agencies are all now one homeland security office. Uh, we've been reorganized more functionally uh, to prepare the state and to make sure the state is well prepared for any kind of event that might happen to us. Um, and I'd like to emphasize it's not just uh, not just terrorism focus. It's any disaster. Since 1990, we've had well over 20 presidential declared disasters in Indiana. So we're, we're kind of old hat at disasters. Most of ours tend to be tornadoes, wind damage, flood damage, snow, um, you know, typical kinds of, uh, um, you know, natural disasters that we would expect in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Now, before we went on the air, uh, Mary Catherine, and I asked you about your background, and I thought that was, it was very interesting. You, you come from Purdue. And would you talk a little bit about what you were doing uh, before you became director of Homeland Security? Of course. Uh, Purdue had a Homeland Security Institute there, that, and I was a managing director. So I was responsible for doing research and developing courses in Homeland Security uh, to promote Homeland Security within the, the students. Uh, I had done that for about uh, a, a close to 18 months before the, the governor called me to uh, make a job change uh, about a year and a half ago. Now you sound like a Midwesterner. Oh, I, I grew up in Michigan City in Indiana, <laughs> okay. and I went to school at Rose Holman in Purdue. Uh, uh, you know, so uh, you know, Indiana's my home. Indiana's my wife's home. We met in high school. Uh, so you know, when it came time to leave the military, uh, we wanted to come back home to Indiana. Uh, we we also my oldest daughter started college uh, the the year I retired, and she had picked before it was time. I knew it was time to retire. She had picked Purdue to go to school. So uh, she's an engineering major up there, and quite happy. Uh, I, I think that the parents followed her off to college. <laughs> <laughs> our, our guest today is Eric Dietz, who's the executive director of the Indiana Department of Homeland Security. 
you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-934 at outside of the Bloomington area. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. I'd like to get back to the $150 million um, that's come into the state. Can you give some examples of how that money's been spent? Uh, One good example is our 800 megahertz safety communications program. We've got an interoperable 800 megahertz radio uh, system that the state uh, has uh, embarked on several years ago. Uh, the total cost of the system was about $70 million, and about a third of that has been funded out of the Homeland Security Grant Program, uh, a little here and a little there. Um, in fact, that was one of our focus areas from last year is to try to make sure every department in the state had at least one 800 megahertz system. So you had, if you will, a, a command network so that all the leaders from each department could uh, get on one radio system and hear what was going on at a disaster scene. We felt, we felt that was very important. So at each city, who would have A fire chief or police chief uh, would, would have that radio system. Some of our departments have completely converted to the 800 megahertz system. So they are all routinely using the same radio for both their department communications as well as command communications with state police, with incident command at a, at a scene. Uh, we've spent a, a large amount of money on protective equipment for uh, all of our responders to make sure that uh, if there's a, a chemical event, whether it's a, a hazardous material spill uh, or, uh, you know, an al-Qaeda attack, uh, you know, though that may be – we hope that's very unlikely. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to make sure our responders have some protective equipment on the scene so that they uh, do not become casualties themselves. The 800 megahertz, does that allow them, for example, to – uh, communicate directly with Indianapolis, or how does that? Why uh, is that a benefit? Uh, the the 800 megahertz has a statewide backbone and covers the state uh, from the road surfaces. 95 percent of the state, you could pick up the radio and talk to anybody else in the state on that radio system. I have about 270 people in, in my department. Uh, many of them have those radio systems, and we can have somebody on that same radio system uh, in the southern part of the state talk to somebody in South Bend, talk to somebody in Indianapolis, and we can all hear what's going on. We can coordinate what's happening. About two weeks ago, we had a, uh, some awful wind damage up in Porter and mm-hmm. LaPorte County. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually you hear 100-plus-mile-an-hour uh, 100, 100 winds coming off the water, and you think, oh, it must have been Florida, you know, Mississippi, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Texas. In this case, it was Lake Michigan, and Porter and LaPorte County took the brunt of that. Uh, we were on our 800 megahertz radio system coordinating uh, where we were going to rally as several of us left our homes uh, you know, late that night to try to uh, get to – uh, you know, LaPorte County and Michigan City and try to, you know, do an assessment of the damage. Uh, you know, so uh, we've made good use of those systems. I think the state is, uh, you know, the local agencies have made good use of those. And we've been very lucky to get that help to make that f- program move as fast as it has. So I assume that those aren't dependent on standing radio towers. They have some other... They, they, are, de- they are dependent on towers. Uh, and that provides the long coverage, but they also can uh, communicate radio to radio. So as long as I'm uh, within range of your radio, we can talk radio to radio, but we also rely on the backbone from the towers. And uh, that's uh, that's another piece of the program that we've used our grant money to help support. Uh, the uh, towers, whether they come down in a storm, yeah. an al-Qaeda attack, or, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, somebody uh, actually, you know, just has an accident and backs over one of the cables out there on on the farm. Um, we've got uh, now a backup system that was a mobile site that could wheel into any disaster scene or any place that we might have lost a tower and rapidly put communications back in. That was another investment that we made as part of our uh, homeland security upgrades. Great. Now, one of the most recent uh, news releases that came out of your office involved a, a new mobile command center in northwest Indiana. Could you talk about that? Well, the, the, the mobile command center is, is actually a statewide asset. We had a mobile command center in the state, but it was actually just a 53 three-foot tractor trailer. It was not expandable. And it, it was okay for our agency alone to sh- show up at a disaster scene, provide some cum- communications. But what it didn't do is really provide a mobile, flexible emergency operations center that all the agencies responding could get together and coordinate their activities. As both the feds are asking us to do and we see is appropriate with this uh, national emergency management system that we're trying to implement as part of the feds. Uh, so this system we bought with grant money. It's got the capability of uh, setting up in 15 minutes, having satellite communication so you can get on the internet, you can get uh, cell phones operating, you can get uh, uh, you know radio telephones operating, and you can also operate our 800 megahertz and other satellite radio systems all from this uh, this one command center. Uh, we uh, actually had the opportunity to deploy that for that uh, LaPorte and Porter County disaster, 
And uh, in fact, the counties used that as their command center. We showed up with it and said, well, we've got this capability. And they said, that's great. We'd like to put our various folks from the two counties, from the various departments that were involved, and the various state agencies to coordinate their response and recovery activities. I mean, th- that I think is a very good news story that, uh, you know, that w- we did a couple of things. The state responded rapidly to a need. Uh, we set up a command center quickly and we re- responded with a, you know, abundance of assets that ha- basically helped those communities get back into shape in uh, just a matter of days. They still got some recovery to do, some more trees to replant and so on. But if you can imagine, the Beverly Shores area had every single road blocked by trees that were over 48-inch trunks. That's a pretty significant job to clear. Uh, we went in there with Department of Corrections, Natural Resources, the National Guard, our office, the Department of Transportation, and helped the locals, supported those local, that local fire department that was a scene commander in Beverly Shores. And we had the roads cleared that were to- almost totally blocked by 6 o'clock in the morning. At 2 o'clock, I went through that area with our state reps and senators and showed them that we had, except for a few places that had power lines entangled in trees, uh, those roads were cleared. So, you know, I think uh, I think we're, you know, got the right direction. We got the right purpose. And Governor Daniels has pushed us to, um, you know, become a support agency of these local departments that are in the disaster. And, uh, you know, I, I, my philosophy would be to, you know, uh, respond with overwhelming response. And when we don't need it and can't keep it busy, we send it home as fast as we can to, to make sure that we stay efficient. We're, we're tossing around some pretty big numbers here. I know that you get uh, federal funding. Will you need to go to the legislature this year and, and request funds from the state? Well, we're all trying to be very petite about any of our requests that we make on our taxpayers. It's, uh, you know, a difficult thing to try to, you know, take tax money at the state level and, and try to use it for these things. We, we probably will have to look for some funding to help support our Intelligence Fusion Center. That will be a that, – that, that's a new start program that we've start that we've begun with grant funding, uh, but our grant funding is only going to uh, extend for two years. So we're probably going to have to ask them for at least extension funds to to keep that moving. I need a definition of what that is. An intelligence <laughs> intelligence fusion center uh, at, at uh, fusion is basically the uh, disparate data points and trying to merge them into data actionable intelligence items or data points that you could uh, make action on. Uh, it would be one thing to say the stock market's going to go up, but it would be better if you knew specifically which stocks were going to go up and, you know, how much. Uh, so the intelligence function is trying to take those disparate data points and try to put them together. The federal government has such activity. Uh, we had a, a highlight of that recently with the uh, airline scare with the United Kingdom mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, subsequent upgrade in our airline uh, security status. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're looking at the Intelligence Fusion Center doing for the state is taking disparate data points that exist with local law enforcement departments, trying to fuse those together to get a better picture of where crimes are going on, how we can prevent those at the local level. Since we know we can, we know there are international terrorists interested uh, in uh, causing us harm. We also know there's domestic terrorists that uh, and domestic uh, activity that we need to keep an eye on. Uh, frankly, we've got activities that we uh, could and should do a better I, uh, idea uh, keeping an eye on. Things like arson tend to be serial crimes. It'd be much better if we could find a pattern in the serial criminal and try to put him out of business as early as possible. We could eliminate a lot of arson crimes that way. We've got gang activity in the state. Uh, the Fusion Center should be able to help us with gang activity. Sounds like you're gonna, you are interacting with other agencies like the FBI. Is that right? Certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that we've uh, we, we work with all, we've got a number of federal agents uh, from a number of different agencies in the state, including the FBI, Transportation Security Agency, uh, and uh, and so on. Uh, you know, we've got ATF. Uh, we routinely mm-hmm. work with all of those folks to try to make sure that uh, the particular topic area is is appropriately responded to. So we always hear about turf battles among agencies and that that sometimes slows a response time. Are you, uh, as the Department of Homeland Security in Indiana, kind of the umbrella organization that everybody communicates through or how does that work? Well, I, the, uh, the, the Governor Daniels did sign an executive order. A disaster is my responsibility to coordinate for the state. It doesn't mean we're always in charge. If it's a health issue, obviously the Department of Health is in charge. If it's a spill, the environment, environmental uh, management is in charge, a, and so on. 
uh, things like a tornado that could be, you know, you can't figure out who to pin it on. We're, we're stuck with those. <laughs> but um, we are an umbrella agency. We do, uh, you know, our job, our primary job, I think, is the coordination of other agencies. And if you, you look at our strategic plan on our website, it talks about our number one uh, action is teamwork. I think uh, if we respond to a scene and keep in mind that the public needs help, it doesn't matter whether you're state, local, federal, official on the scene. You just got to keep in mind that there's some local person who needs help. And uh, and we do that through the local departments that have responded initially. And we're there sometimes many hours before the feds get on the scene, maybe many days or weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we hope maybe only uh, you know hours or minutes before state officials were on the scene. All right, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. The email address is noon at indiana.edu. Eric Dietz is our guest. He's the executive director of the Indiana Department of Homeland Security. Now, you mentioned before the, the issue in the United Kingdom uh, recently. When there's a, a, an increase in the terror alert in the U.S. or an incident like that is um, discovered internationally, what's your um, responsibility? Are, are you contacted by the National Office of Homeland Security? And then, you know, what, what's your protocol? What do you do? Well, I, I, we've had one such event so far, and that was, uh, that was the aircraft uh, uh, incident uh, in the United Kingdom. In, in that case, I got a call about 1230 at, uh, in the morning, mm-hmm. um, and it said, uh, you know, basically the message was is join us at a, a 0100 conference call. Uh, so uh, you know, all the state gotta, directors gotta get your blood pressure going off. <laughs> well, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of getting that call in the middle of the night. And you know, of course, my my wife remembers those days as well. So you know, she uh, you know she did her part to make sure that I was uh, I was up and moving and you know uh, taking the call. But uh, about one o'clock in the morning, we had a conference call that included an intelligence update, including an operational briefing, as well as the uh, operational upgrades that our airports would undergo. Uh, by 4 o'clock that morning. So if you can imagine, decision was made late that night, early in the morning. Uh, they notified all the states that uh, could get marshaled and get on the call, uh, and the airports had made a change by 4 o'clock. Uh, we, uh, in a similar way, uh, took whatever actions that you know we could to support uh, you know, the TSA and the state. And we're prepared to support them. Uh, fortunately, uh, we've got very good air, air, airport security, and our TSA folks did a great job of making the changes and uh, you know taking folks toothpaste and shampoo and all those other things away. So we've made uh, air travel unfortunately more uh, you know uh, more of a hassle. Uh, but you know, it certainly was not done, uh, you know, arbitrarily. It was done because there was a grave threat and there was a, a, a real threat that we all face because, uh, you know, it's a, it's a sad thing when you take just some commercial products from the drugstore and turn them into a bomb. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're living in that world now. Mm-hmm. I'm flying next week. Are those restrictions still in place? Yes, they are. Okay. And I'm flying next week, too. So, <laughs> All right. Well, I better get to the airport early. Yeah. All right. Email? Let, yeah, let's begin. Uh, all of us in light of 9-11-2001 are interested in genuine security for our homeland, but it seems to me that the issue has been increasingly politicized in these five years. Republicans want us to think they do the best job in this regard. Democrats want to convince us we're still threatened, as in the most Osama bin Laden tape, and therefore we should trust them. On a local level, some of the money seems to be going to the part of the county with the most political clout rather than genuine need. How can we depoliticize this arena in the current polarized environment? Well, I I can't speak for the whole country. I can tell you how we distribute grant money in Indiana and how we try to make sure the money gets to the right need. Um, I I can't say that, you know, that was always done before I arrived, but I can say after I arrived, what we've done and, uh, and what we've continued is all of our grant money goes through the county emergency Uh, management director. He determines with the county commissioners who are elected officials at the county level, uh, you know, where that money is uh, best put to use. Uh, So if there's a local issue that uh, the county commissioners are, are politicizing it, uh, that's, that's one thing that we've tried to control. And we say what happens if news of that gets back to you? Well, what we've done this year, for instance, is we've asked that we approve 100% of all programs before the money is spent. What we used to do is tell a county, uh, you know, congratulations, you got $200,000, let us know what you'd like to do. What we did this year is we said, you've got up to $200,000 uh, if you address 
uh, the key projects and we gave them some key priorities. We gave the counties key priorities like to develop plans, to develop an exercise for your plans and develop a seamless interoperable communication network for the county. In some cases, that meant some. we've got counties uh, like, for instance, Boone County up towards the north that uh, bonded for about $4 million and bought 800 megahertz radios for all responders in the county. That's an example of a county doing a lot of the right things, and we didn't have to buy the radios for them. We allowed them to buy something different. The counties that had not completed 800 megahertz conversion or did not have a seamless interoperable communication network, we asked that they buy those things first, address those needs first before they address needs that might be more political or more of an interest to their county. We've got to keep in mind each county is different. We have very rural counties. We have very urban counties. We have uh, counties with uh, chemical plants that pro- uh, provide special uh, needs and precautions that are for responders in those areas. And we need to make sure that we allow them some flexibility to, to buy what they think is best. But at the same time, we provided a little more oversight than we had in the past. Uh, yeah, I want to ask about um, you know, the different, different needs and, and different, different security needs in, in, in this context. Uh, hasn't been too long, a couple weeks ago or maybe a month ago, that there was a, uh, I think, federal report released about about assets, and you know exactly where I'm going with this. Indiana had listed, you know, more more assets, which was sort of translated into security risks than I think any other state in the in the country. You know, including the Amish popcorn factory in Bern, which is sort of the poster child now for for how this project went a little bit wrong. Um, could you sort of take us through the process in terms of, of how those assets were selected, how it is that Indiana, I guess, it seems almost like there was an apples and oranges situation among the states. Uh, you know, you can uh, explain if that's true or just sort of, you know, should I not be going to the Amish popcorn factory? You know, I, <laughs> well, I, I, I love the political cartoon. I've got it framed <laughs> it in my office. So I thought that was great. Um, I, the the, the uh, the uh, critical asset list is what it was. It wasn't a target list. It was a critical asset list. That was about two and a half years old. So it was prepared before I arrived. Uh, but the list is our list. Uh, and it was uh, derived in the following way. We ask each county, what's important to you? The counties came back and they said, here's what's important. Each, each county came back and listed their county courthouse. Each county came back and if they had a fairground, they listed it. They listed the sheriff's department. They listed the gas station where they fill up with gas. Uh, they listed the roller rink or the uh, gymnasium that they would use for a shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they listed all those assets that are important to them. We put those on our list. We ask all of our state agencies the same questions. We gave them the guidance that the feds gave us, which in some cases, in the case of the popcorn factory, was tell us an agricultural facility that exports to more than five states. The Amish popcorn factory has a website, and they ship to all 50 states and internationally. Their popcorn is great. <laughs> We've had it. I can remember having it as a kid here in the state. I, I, I think you know, that's an example that we followed the guidance. We followed it you know, to the letter that DHS asked us to. We knew we had a long list. We asked for clarification when the list was prepared and the DHS, uh, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, the feds, not the state. We didn't exist then. But the, the feds told us put everything on the list and then we'll sort it out. Uh, we put dams on the list. For some reason, the list of 8,300 that we submitted was really 10,000 long. It included dams. Well, our dams came off the list that the feds published, but the popcorn factory stayed on. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know – the the every state fairground or every county fairground in the state, I mean th- those are great things. Yeah. I'm not sure they're all critical assets to the state for recovery, but if the county is counting on that for a response to their disaster and that's key to their plans and their fairground is hit and taken out, that's an event for the county that you know we all need to be aware of. We need to know what's important to the county for their plans and have that awareness. And frankly, you know, for the other states that didn't do quite as good a job, I think. Any Hoosier could tell you the Empire State Building and Statue of Liberty should have been on somebody's list. And you can argue whether it's New York's or New Jersey's in the case of Statue of Liberty. But uh, any Hoosier could have identified the Empire State Building as should have been on New York City's list or in New York State's list. 
and uh, the fact that they didn't list their key assets and we did a good job of listing everything to the guidance Mm -hmm. shouldn't be a a critical uh, item for Indiana. It should be a tribute to the folks that put the list together and did the right thing and and my staff that did the right thing before I arrived to even know how good they were. So what's happening with all that? Is the the Federal Department of Homeland Security – Asking states to revise their list—it just seems like such a such a broad um, list that has all these things on it wouldn't be that helpful to anybody. Well, uh, you, you try not to be critical of anybody, right? Right. Uh, but uh, in some cases, the folks that we have at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security uh, have not had local experience, have not had uh, had not had state experience. So when they start asking a question that they think is fr- fairly straightforward and say, "Where are your critical assets?" and they think every state might give them a few hundred. Uh, I think they were surprised, especially their guidance. If you come up with guidance that says, tell me an ag facility that ships to five or more uh, states, uh, that's almost anything you got in the state mm-hmm. because we probably – any grain elevator in the state probably ships corn somewhere else to five other states. Um, you know, so I think, I think it just depends on how you interpret the guidance and how you offer the guidance. And I think we're all learning in this process. I think our, all of our intentions are genuine. We all have the best interests of public safety in mind and sometimes – you know, we let these lists get a little too political. Frankly, the states that were very shrill and loud about Indiana being number one on the list were states that were already very upset that they got less money than the year before. Frankly, we all got less money than the year before. Indiana didn't get more because we had a robust list. Uh, and in fact, we got cut more than New York did. We got cut more than New Jersey or Washington, D.C. did. But you know, we, we haven't complained about what we've got. We've, we've basically adjusted our priority list. We've made good use of that money and we've tried to distribute in the counties um, with the counties as, as well as we possibly can to improve safety and security in the state. Do, do you have a list in your office that would be a lot more sort of a realistic critical assets list? We do. Yeah. It's classified. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> All right. I think we've hit uh, break time because it's uh, – yeah, it's half past the hour, so we've hit break time. Uh, Eric Dietz is our guest today. He's the executive director of the Indiana Department of Homeland Security. Uh, we'd love to have your questions and comments the second half of the show. Call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. You're listening to Noon Edition, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations, Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. WFIU is a media sponsor for A Night at the Opera. This annual event raises funds for Middleway House, Monroe County's shelter for battered women and children, This year's event features performances by Lisa Williamson, IU faculty member Tim Noble, and students. Herald Times columnist Peter Jacoby will offer commentary, and WFIU's George Walker will be the MC. A Night at the Opera takes place on Saturday, September 9th at the Fine Arts Building. Doors open at 6 p.m. More information at wfiu.indiana.edu. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And our guest today, Eric Dietz, the executive director of the Indiana Department of Homeland Security. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. And I might put a plug in just for our listeners to actually give a call. I think that uh, you know, Will Murphy, our producer, contacting Eric and having Eric come down here to Bloomington is sort of a coup for the show. It's uh, just three days before the fifth anniversary of 9-11 and to have the state's executive director of Homeland Security here is uh, – is uh, our honor. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for being here. 
All right. Well, I have a question. I remember uh, when I was growing up, and everybody's going to remember these, the emergency shelter signs, the circle with the three triangles inside um, that were on several public buildings. You don't really see those anymore. Is there a replacement plan for those? Well, we've got uh, sheltering plans at all of our counties. Frankly, those were fallout shelters, and, right. and they were really just prepositions of supplies. So we always thought – I always thought when I was a kid that there was some big cache of supplies there. I found that when I you know, got a little older you know, in the military that it was basically crackers and a tin can and some water. So it um, you know, probably was a good idea to have something around, but it was uh, not as robust as I think any of us were led to believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, frankly, the threat uh, that required that those be put together uh, has uh, gone away. Um, I mean, sadly, we may be going back to a time mm-hmm. of that, that we need to worry about rogue nations with nuclear weapons and missile technology. But um, at least for the time bearing, bear, uh, being, uh, that threat has not been here. We look at more at, at sheltering capabilities after storms, after folks that lose their homes. And uh, the need is uh, not quite as severe. And each local government has got sheltering locations, whether it's a school gym, the, the roller skater skating rink or uh, what have you. Uh, in some cases, it's a fairground uh, mm-hmm. to, to uh, take care of their folks. And uh, we typically do not preposition supplies today. We've got in such of a uh, just-in-time uh, uh, mobile economy that we can move a lot of supplies very, very quickly to where they're needed. And it, it just tends to be more efficient and a little more cost-effective uh, uh, to try to haul those in where we need them as opposed to prepositioning those. A good example is FEMA's famous truckload of ice that seemed to tour the country over about four months about a year ago. Um, you know, we, we probably don't want to stockpile things that we aren't pretty sure we're going to need, and we would rather just call for them as we need them. We're working with major suppliers to try to make sure that we've got adequate contracts and assurance in place that those things will come to us when needed. What about a like a dirty bomb? That's kind of the closest thing I can come to think of as far as you know. The old threat, as you mentioned, was nuclear mm-hmm. fallout. That that was a concern, but I would say the modern version of that is a dirty bomb. Well, the, the, the fortunate thing is a dirty bomb, it would take quite a bit of, uh, of dirt to put together with a bomb to actually uh, get a large area contaminated. So, you know, what we're looking at now is, is still maybe many city blocks, not necessarily cities and not, and not counties and not uh, a whole state. Uh, you know, that, that got to be one of the uh, uh, more funny things we had to deal with is after Katrina. Each of the 50 states were told by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security that they needed an evacuation plan. And we said, OK, well, for what? And they said, for the state. <laughs> and we mm-hmm. said, well, you know, ask them again. I don't think there's a credible event that would require that we evacuate Indiana. But that was the plan that, that we were asked for. So, um, you know, that, that's one of the things that I think that we need to provide some balance and, and make sure the public understands that there's a buffer between some of these things. It might seem like a good idea. It's a good idea to know how you're going to evacuate Florida if you've got a Cat 5 hurricane bearing mm-hmm. down on you or a big piece of a coastal region. That's very important. It's probably not as important uh, in most of our scenarios. Even a dirty bomb would not affect all of our big cities uh, depending on the size of the dirty bomb. Mm-hmm. It does seem like a lot of communities might want to have an evacuation plan or uh, you know, if you're in southern Indiana, you might want to know how to get across a river or something like that. But a- absolutely. To evacuate the entire state does seem a little ludicrous. Uh, that's a little that's bit of my word. Anyway. That, that's a little bit of uh, you know the outside of what we would rather spend our resources on. I'd rather yeah. spend our resources on what we're pretty sure we're going to use and make sure we're thinking towards some of those worst case events for the state, not necessarily uh, preparing for the Martian invasion or you know whatever else we might be working on. There's a commercial that's been running um, frequently lately, and I, I assume it comes from the national uh, female, although I could certainly be wrong or not female. Sorry. Um, Department of Homeland Security. Thank you. Thank you. I had an absolute brain freeze there for a minute. Um, But it shows children um, asking their parents questions, you know, what should we do? What should we do? And and I think it's obviously targeted toward children. And and so, what kind of a disaster plan do you recommend families put together? Well, I, I think that's a really good question. I think uh, our preparedness does start at homes. It starts at the individual level, level with personal responsibility, and uh, where uh, FEMA and all of us have for years said that you should have three days worth of food and water in your house. I think many of our Many of our citizens don't, and they take it for granted. I mean, and they take it for granted. You can see they take it for granted every time we know a snowstorm is coming and all the milk and bread sells out. We know they don't have three days of supply because there they go stocking up the day before the storm comes in. 
so I think you know the preparedness starts in you know at home. Uh, it, it, it starts with uh, you know having that food and canned goods and those other things that you can uh, get by for at least three days. And keep in mind, three days. If you look at Hurricane Katrina, <laughs> if you look at uh, Hurricane Andrew or 9/11. It really took an organized uh, about ten days for an organized response out of the out of the FEMA and the feds to show up. That really leaves us at state and local trying to deal with the problem for the first few days. And if uh, the, the household does not have their own supplies for the first day or two or three or more, uh, as they can afford to uh, stockpile that, that's a problem. Uh, one of the things I started uh, an academic program when I was at Purdue. So we hired a couple of uh, middle school teachers, a social studies teacher and a science teacher, and their guidance was uh, – and we gave them some funding. We paid for their, basically their, uh, their salary in the summer when they normally are off and we said, here's your challenge. Come up with an education program on homeland security from a science perspective and a social studies perspective that costs nothing but answers basically education requirements of the middle school student already. So we're not trying to add anything to the curriculum. We're just trying to add some new examples and a new twist to the problem. Um, those, those fellows came up with an excellent program and what I would like to do at the state level here is try to look at expanding that, look at ways of expanding that uh, to you know get that into the grade schools, into the uh, high schools and, and other uh, venues as appropriate because frankly, I think we all learned to recycle because our children came home from school and told us how important it was to save the planet and recycle. I think uh, you know this is another thing that we can – uh, you know, encourage our children to understand what it is, what security is, and do it in a way that's not threatening or frightening. Right. I was just going to ask you that. I know you're a parent, and I struggle with this a little bit. How much is too much? What do you tell children? Well, my, my children, uh, we, we grew, or my children uh, in 9-11 five years ago were in northern New Jersey, or central New Jersey, about 40 minutes train ride from New York City. They had friends they went to school with whose parents never came home from uh, that work, day of work. And the train station a half mile from my house had cars that weren't claimed at the end of the day. There were many people who died in our community outside New York City. I think our community is one of the harder ones, harder hit ones for, for fatalities. So my kids remember this very well. In fact, I think it's, it's, it's a difficult thing. Some of their schoolmates are asking them questions about, well, that was five years ago. That's no big deal. That's over. Uh, I think the thing that we all need to keep in mind, that 9-11, that first plane that crashed into the building, we all thought it was a knucklehead. We didn't know how bad it was. When the second plane hit, I think we all – it maybe didn't occur to us at the time, but in reflecting on it, you know, even, even recently, you know, our life changed for us. It changed because we realized with that second plane or, you know, that second plane highlight at the time that this is a global war. This is a war that we're a participant in. Since 19 uh, – or 1812, uh, we have not had war on our continent this way. And I think we need to keep that in mind. Uh, you know, we shouldn't frighten folks, but we should make sure people are respectful of the things that are going to – and the sacrifices that may need to be made at times to make sure that we solve this war and don't let it carry on for a very long time. All right, 855-0811, and noon at indiana.edu. Uh, this email begins, uh, the state official, that's you, Eric, uh, stated that we are safer now than we were five years ago. However, when I look at the absolute incompetence of the federal government's response to Katrina, I'm having trouble feeling safer. I realize that you are speaking as a state official, not a federal official, but why should I believe you when you say we're safer now? Well, I, I, I can do it with example. Uh, in the case of Hurricane Katrina that hit the Gulf Coast, within four days, we deployed a task force of 250 Hoosiers to Mississippi to settle on Biloxi to help solve their problems. We were down there for 45 days uh, helping them. We, we agreed up front to as long as six months. We in two-week rotations. We're going to stay there for six months. In 45 days, because of the way we sent an entire task force of folks, of Hoosiers that worked together, Fire, police, healthcare workers, National Guard, natural resources uh, across the board. We sent them down there to solve Biloxi, Mississippi's problem. Uh, we had no plan for that. We had not done this before. We had never sent more than one or two people to another state to help with the disaster. But the, you know, we we looked at the magnitude of the problem. We sat down in our staff, and my staff, frankly. Uh, tried to do business the old way. They came to me with a stack of about 600 requests from Mississippi and Louisiana for various kinds of support. They were 50 firefighters here, 
50 police officers there, you know, specific equipment here and there. And, you know, I looked at those and looked at my staff and said, I don't know what I would do with that if I was Indiana. Each one of those mm-hmm. states eventually had a thousand requests for help. I told you before I got an apartment of 270 people. Can you imagine my department managing a thousand requests for help and as many as 40,000 people coming in saying, hey, boss, what do you want me to do? Where can I help? Um, what we did is we came up with a concept of pushing a package that could go down and help an individual mayor or an individual county and help them get secure. We, Several of those packages, I assume. Well, we sent one. Other states sent others. Oh, okay. And, and uh, frankly, Mississippi didn't quite know what to do with us when we got there. They first kept trying to pull us apart. We kept trying to say, no, no, leave us together. They sent us to Biloxi, the worst hit city of, of that area. And again, Biloxi was done with us in 45 days because our law enforcement helped provide stability. And they got there at the time that their own law enforcement in Biloxi had gotten so tired working 24-7 that they hadn't had time to sleep. They hadn't had time to secure their homes or check on their families. So when we showed up, we relieved them. We let them go square away their families. They had a little bit of time to do that. They square away their, their households and got some rest and came back. And at about about the four week mark, they started looking around, saying, "Well, you've helped do what we what we need right now. Uh, you've helped us get back to at least a normal rotation. Helped us get back to some normalcy, and uh, the stability that we offered with that big chunk of folks also allowed contractors to start coming in and had enough feeling of security that they could come in weeks after the disaster, not months after the disaster. And as a result, Biloxi uh, has got a long ways to go." But they've got hotels back in operation. They've got casinos back in operation. Uh, they're rebuilding houses. Uh, they're doing what they need to do to get the area back together. Uh, their, their mayor has contacted us recently and, again, thanked us for their help. Uh, we've had American legions and other folks thank, them, thank us for our help. And, again, you know, I think we did the right thing. We took everything that was needed into an area that we thought at the time. We've gotten much smarter now. Um, and, you know, we did a lot for Indiana by doing that. Each of those two-week rotations trained another 250 Hoosiers on how we want response to happen in this state and how we want to make sure that the response is local because, frankly, the disaster is local. Uh, we want to make sure the next time there's a disaster in Indiana, we think of them as a uh, Mayor Giuliani type, not a Mayor Nagin type. And I think that's the important thing that we want to know. Uh, you know, I don't want anybody thanking me when we're done. I want them to go thank their mayor and I want their mayor to know that, you know, we helped get them, you know, brushed off and stood back up so they could do their job. And I, I think perhaps I, when I asked the question the first time, I may have asked the wrong question. I said, are we safer now? I think the, probably the, the reality is, are we more prepared now? And mm. that's probably a little bit that more is a different fair way yeah. to, to say it. Well, and, you know, if we're prepared, we are safer because right. we can recover. Uh, you know, we've got no way of stopping a, a tornado or a flood right. or a snowstorm. But I think we've got a methodology that is better uh, – has better prepared us to respond to those things. And uh, we – frankly, we did that last November in Evansville. The first state official from my office that was on the scene because of the way we've reorganized was on the scene in about 15 minutes. Now – Frankly, Evansville was his community, but you know, so uh, you know, so it wasn't hard for him to get on the scene. But we've uh, broken the state into ten homeland security districts. Those are collections of counties that we want to work together, uh, that we want to work together in response, and we want them to share assets. So when it comes to a, a big mobile command vehicle like the state bought, we don't necessarily need every county to have one, but we need one county and a district to have one that they can share. Uh, we uh, have mass casualty uh, trailers and capability to respond where we've got mass casualties. Again, every community doesn't need that. We just need to make sure it's available in a in a very fairly small radius so it's there to help. That's where we're going with the state to try to make sure everybody doesn't get everything. We've done that. We've done that with the basic protective gear, the radios, and the things that uh, individuals need. Now we need to work on what the organizations need and how to build organizations that can rapidly assemble and uh, do what is needed to help secure our communities. Another concern I've heard mentioned is um, the general public has kind of a sense that with so many National Guard troops deployed um, in Iraq that there might be a shortage of those troops locally should we have a disaster and, and really need the National Guard to perform their traditional role here at home. Is that a concern you share? Uh, absolutely not. And there's a very good reason for that. Uh, Indiana has probably the second largest National Guard contingent of any state in the nation. We've done that because our Nash- National Guard has very quietly over the years built up, bid, and requested capability that other states didn't want to provide. So we've got one of the most robust guard populations in the country. 
Uh, we might have at any given time a lot of folks deployed, but we still have more folks that are left in Indiana that more than other states have uh, before deployments are even considered in. Uh, we have not had a disaster yet since my experience here that we haven't had all the guard members that we needed to respond, and they've done so with vigor and uh, and a lot of energy. I think we've been very lucky to have them here, and I, I've got no concern about that just because we have such a robust population. The Indiana Guard and a tribute to our, our citizens also has got – they're meeting their recruiting goals. They're exceeding their recruiting goals and uh, number one in recruiting in the nation. So Hoosiers are responding now like uh, like never before and we've got a great guard and a great recruiting system. Uh, we, we've got no problems there. OK. We have a phone call. Let's go to the phone and Colin. Colin? Hello. Hello. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, I was just wondering if um – Actually, I was I was listening earlier, and you, you mentioned that our, our first step is being prepared uh, for for any future <clears throat> attack, and how we should get our houses ready. And I and I was just wanting to point out that that the actual actually the first step we need to know is is the identity um, <clears throat> of our of the real terrorists and. and and the entire war on terror is based on 9-11. And, and on 9-11, we were lied to, okay? Those attacks had nothing to do with al-Qaeda, okay? Had nothing to do with Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, weapons of mass destruction, or any of that. The war on terror is a war on dissent and on freedom, Okay, we still haven't had an appropriate investigation of 9-11. And basically we're signing away, we're, we're relinquishing our, our constitutional rights because of this fake war on terror. All right, Colin, I'm going to cut you off there. I think we get your point. Thank you. Um, let's just react to Colin's point, though. Um, what about the... The issue about civil liberties, because we have lost, we have given up a lot of civil liberties in the last five years, it seems to me. Reaction? Um, in, in places we have, uh, I think they've been measured um, and I think they've been very careful. And I, I would say that, uh, you know, we may not know where the next al-Qaeda attack, terrorism attack or uh, the next natural disaster is. But I think that it, you know, again, highlights the point that if our families are not prepared, and it doesn't matter what their what their preparedness is for, that food, water supply, and some basic preparedness on how a communication is going to work with families, where they're going to rally in the case of a of, of a problem, uh, what happens if your house is not habitable, those are plans that our our communities and our and our families, frankly, need. And, uh, you know, we can have a lot of debate on all of those other things. But um, if your family doesn't have a communications plan and doesn't have some basic supplies, they're putting themselves at risk. Mm -hmm. And it sometimes doesn't cost a lot to do that. You know, an extra an extra 99 cent gallon jug of water uh, a week is something most people could afford. Mm -hmm. And a couple cans of soup is something most people could afford to start building that cache of uh, supplies for themselves. And it doesn't cost anything to sit down and talk you know, among your family members and uh, talk about, you know, how we're going to check on grandma and how we're going to get back together if there's a tornado, if there's a windstorm or an ice storm uh, that we know, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've driven through this area a lot to, during my college years and I know there's a lot of ice storms here in the winter and there's a lot of people who cannot move once that ice storm happens. So, uh, you know, those are not uncommon to us and, uh, you know, this, you know, the other about uh, there, there's been a lot of investigations. I'm not sure there'll ever be enough for everyone. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, we've done in a pretty measured way, a pretty careful way of taking appropriate precautions. Okay, well, I've got another call. Let's go to Joe. Joe? Yeah, I just wondered how important the, the volunteers are and what kind of system or network you have for that. Because I remember seeing the images of Katrina and a lot of people were volunteering with their some special vehicles. And I guess in disasters here, you have the, the uh, people with the four-wheel drives and all that. Is there a network of volunteering to do that or is it just spontaneous? Great question. Uh, 
this state is uh, is probably got a great network of volunteers, uh, as evidenced by our, our fire departments. Eighty percent of our firefighters in the state are volunteers. Eighty percent of the territory in the state covered by fire departments is covered by volunteers. So uh, we have an extensive network of volunteers already at the fire department. They are our first responders. They are the guys that are going to be at your house first if, uh, if a call is made. We also have uh, community emergency response teams called CERT, C-E-R-T. Those are basically folks that volunteer to help out their communities in emergency management at times of disaster. We have a training program for that. We actually have a, a backpack full of preparedness gear for folks that agree to participate in that program. Uh, if, uh, if you're interested or you've got listeners that are interested in that, I would encourage you to, to talk to your emergency management director at the county level, mm-hmm. and uh, he can get you uh, set up with a CERT training that, again, that we provide uh, no cost to uh, those that do it. Uh, and there's a number of other volunteer programs. I'd like to highlight another volunteer or a program for volunteers that I think that uh, is, is pretty exciting from my point of view. Mm-hmm. I inherited a, a, a foundation, the license plate money, uh, that uh, you know was used to promote uh, emergency management and, and uh, safety programs in the state. I took the advertising budget for that, and we're, we don't do advertising anymore. We got enough advertising, uh, but what we're going to do with that money is we're going to put two thousand dollars scholarships for twenty uh, college students in the state hmm. that also agree to do volunteer work while they're in college. Cool. We're going to recur that uh, scholarship for those folks based upon the quality of their education work as well as the quality of their volunteer work and uh, basically continue that through the four-year program that they may get uh, signed up in. So, um, you know, that program you can find on our website, uh, the CERT program you can find on our website. Uh, we've, we've done some of those things. Uh, we, it, frankly, we can't do enough. It requires literally 6.2 million Hoosiers stepping up and doing what they can do. And uh, first thing they can do is prepare themselves, and the next thing those that are, have time or willingness or, uh, and so on can help their community, just as you've suggested. Right. All right, Joe. Great, thanks. Thanks a lot for the call. We've got just a couple minutes to go. Okay. What's uh, your uh, agency's relationship with the Red Cross? Uh, the, the Red Cross works closely with us in times of disaster. They're, they're designated uh, to help us with both food and shelter when needed. Uh, they run a number of our shelters and uh, work quite closely with us to coordinate activities of all the volunteer organizations in the state. Okay. And here's an email that came in. Uh, it begins, has there been, to your knowledge, an increase in individual home bomb shelters around the state? I, this uh, writer says, I, too, am from Michigan City and grew up there through the 50s. I remember knowing about several homes in town and out that had bomb shelters, usually in backyards, many of them with food, water, and general supplies. Uh, we've uh, we've had uh, n- uh, notifications that there have been a number of those out there. Uh, we don't track those, but I, I certainly uh, – I, I think a, a bomb shelter may be a bit robust, but basically a preparedness kit in your basement and in uh, a, a designated area of your house ready for that kind of thing in, a, in a, a place in your basement or a shelter in your house is an excellent idea. Okay. In the last 30 seconds, give me uh, your view of whether the new fireworks law was a success this year, whether it should be tweaked a little bit. Uh, I, I think the, the fireworks law was a success based upon a couple of things. We did not have uh, 18 or 20 lawsuits like we normally had with people arguing and bickering over fireworks. We also clarified uh, the, the law by basically allowing fireworks sale but providing uh, at least uh, laws that required individual responsibility and accountability for use. And basically, sellers now are required to have safety inspections and have safer point of sales. So we had safer establishments, safer points of use. Initial data from the health department suggests that we had no more injuries this year than we did in last year's. Okay. Thank you very much. We are out of time. I want to thank Eric Dietz, the executive director of the Indiana Department of Homeland Security, for being here with us today. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer um, Catherine Hegeman, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.